Hi, everybody. This is Karen Stefano, and joining me today is Adrian Sharp, author of the novel The Magnificent Esme Wells. Adrian, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you so much for hosting me. Oh, it's it's my pleasure. I loved your novel, and I also have to say I love the cover art. Who who did that for you? They did it in-house at Harper's after a lot of discussion and a lot of different kinds of covers. And finally, uh, sales, which always gets the final vote on every cover, sure. loved this one, and we went with it. Yeah, I, I love it, too. I mean, it, it's got... It's got movement. Uh, I love the color of the car. Uh, it's it it really gives a good uh, preview of of the story too. So uh, they they did a great job for you on that, including the little girl with her head stuck out. Yeah, pointing to the adventures ahead. Very oh, much yeah. as we like. Yes. Yeah. Very much. Very much. So uh, now that I've uh, talked on a on a radio show about visuals um, <laughs> people haven't uh, don't have the book in front of them uh, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what this novel is about it's the story of the young daughter of a busby berkeley dancer over at mgm whose father is a bookie who begins to work for mickey cohen and bugsy siegel and the family eventually ends up in Las Vegas, where my protagonist becomes the first burlesque dancer on the new Las Vegas Strip. So the cover is sort of capturing their travel from one palm tree kind of a place to another um, in pursuit of all their dreams. Lovely. Would you, would you do us a favor and read for us for, for a little bit, maybe from the beginning chapter? Yes, so I'll read uh, the first few paragraphs, which is about uh, the father and daughter uh, a few years after the mom's death, driving out to Las Vegas in 1945. My father and I first drove out to Vegas with Benny Siegel in late summer 1945, all three of us covered with fine brown sand by the time we got there. We shook it from our clothes and our hair and swept it from the seats, the floor, even the dashboard of Mr. Siegel's little red convertible. And when we were done sweeping, Mr. Siegel offered me his hand with his manicured nails to help me out of the cramped little back seat where no one but a child could possibly fit, his face jubilant and eager as if he were about to show us some great prize. I jumped from the car all excited only to gaze with my father and Benny at the blank acres that held the ruins of some old motel where the Flamingo Club and Hotel would soon be built. That was the prize, the unformed future. The landscape was otherwise empty, except for the carcass of a prairie dog, a collapsed bundle of dull fur and bones. I looked around for something else to focus on, and when I found it, I squinted to see the shapes better. Not cacti, but the El Rancho and the Last Frontier. The casinos built before the war, the only things in sight, little specks far down the highway that would eventually be called the Strip. Lovely. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Well, Adrian, I've, I've read the book, and obviously as a reader, I've formed my own opinions, but I want to ask you as her creator, who is Esme? What, what is her essence? 
Well, maybe I can answer that by telling you that it's a bit of a family story. Although my mother was uh, not a burlesque dancer and has never been to Las Vegas in her life, but she was the daughter of these two really gorgeous, reckless parents who did not want to have ordinary lives. And so in pursuit of that extraordinary life they wanted to live, they dropped my mother off at a Baltimore orphanage, got in the car and drove west. They lived out in Los Angeles so that my grandfather could gamble and lay bets and do chip sheets at the great trio of racetracks out here, uh, Del Mar, Santa Anita, Hollywood Park. And then they went to Vegas as well. And they had a second child while they were out here, a boy, uh, my uncle. I never really got to know him because my mom was being raised back east by her relatives who had found her in that orphanage and then took her into their homes. But she always envied her brother who got to live with his parents and she always felt abandoned. And so I imagined what his life was like. And then I thought, okay, you liked his life so much. Let me give it to you in this novel. And Of course, my uncle had a terrible life, uh, dragged around from track to track, locked in the car sometimes when they wanted to go in and gamble and couldn't bring a child in. They moved from hotel to hotel. They were evicted from apartments. He couldn't get away from them fast enough. He joined the army as soon as he could, and he never wanted to see them again. Meanwhile, my mother, of course, being cared for by her aunts, even though they weren't her parents, ended up getting a scholarship to school, an opportunity to go to medical school. She had the life my uncle wished he could have had. Wow. And so I kind of combined them together here um, and imagined my mom living my uncle's life. What would she have done? Um, How would she have maneuvered? My mom is very resilient and very determined person. So what life might she have made if she were given the circumstances my uncle had? Wow, that's a that's fascinating backstory. <laughs> uh, and having read the book, it uh, it kind of gives me shivers hearing you hearing you uh, des- describe this. And uh, it was interesting because I did wonder right away uh, if there was some kind of a personal or family connection to these places it felt it felt very natural and and familiar so so let me ask you so then did your did your mother reunite with her parents at all she always hoped to see them again or that they would leave her something in their will, something to show that they remembered her or cared about her. By the time she tracked them down, and my grandfather had already passed, and my grandmother had dementia, and Mm. she didn't even know what had become with her husband. She thought maybe he'd run off with some other woman. My grandmother didn't know who my mother was. And when my mother introduced herself, she said, oh, I have a daughter with that name. And when my mother said, I am your daughter, it didn't really compute. And my grandmother just said, we don't discuss family matters. Oh, my God. And I 
think that might have been the refrain throughout my grandparents' life. Whenever anybody said, where are your children? Where are your, you know, your own parents? I think it was always, we don't discuss family matters. Kind of shut it down. Wow. Uh, this, yeah, this is, this is a mind-blowing story. And, and, and what year was it that uh, your mom was left in the Baltimore orphanage? In the late 1930s. Okay, so that so that mirrors the the novel uh, precisely. Uh, this wow, this is fascinating. Um, and what does your mother think of the novel? My mother kept saying, "That's not exactly how it happened." That, <laughs> but you know this or that. But she did say that I I captured both the narcissism of her mother uh -huh. Uh -huh. and the um, sort of vivacity of her father. Despite everything he did, he was a charmer. Mm -hmm. And she still speaks lovingly of him, which drives my father insane. Yeah, yeah, oh God, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, well, this, this now clarifies the dedication of the book for my mother, truly magnificent, that's, that's that's really beautiful. It was a beautiful sentiment before I'd heard this story and uh, now even more so. So so now I understand the personal family connection behind this fictional story, The Magnificent Esme Wells. But the, the novel reflects such a real sense of detail for both Las Vegas and Los Angeles in their respective periods. So 1939-ish for Los Angeles, 1945-47-ish for, for Las Vegas. And I now know why you chose these periods and places, but, but what, what kind of research did you do? Obviously you spoke to your mother, but there's there's so much vivid detail in the novel about these places and these periods. It must have taken a, a lot of work to get that right. The work was fun work, though. And by peculiar circumstances, I live in L.A. and I've gone to Vegas many times. So these are two cities that I know and that I was able to go look at, uh, pick out their neighborhoods. Uh, with precision mm -hmm. and because of the internet now I was able to go look at USC's archives of mm -hmm. they have uh, photographed every decade of this city so I could pick the exact house I wanted I could look at the Deutsche House where they have the Nazi rally I could go on uh, University of Nevada Las Vegas website and look at all the old hotels and what the casinos looked like inside and look at what the showgirls wore and who the major figures were. And I could track the evolution of the strip. And I could even go and visit um, the Paradise Palms neighborhood, that sort of mid-century neighborhood uh, built by Mo Daylitz and uh, Comrades, one of the first housing developments in Vegas, which is still a very fun uh, neighborhood. And so I could actually see all these things. And I'm, I'm 
got a lot of history buffs in my family. So we're always reading history books. And my last book was about Matilda Kashesinska, who was the mistress of Nicholas II. And I had to do a lot of research for that as well. And it's always overwhelming in the beginning because you just are pelted with faces and characters and personages from those times. But I've learned if I'm just patient and just keep reading and just keep looking, eventually it's going to be like the water I'm swimming in sort of got to the point with the Romanovs where if I looked at a photograph's caption, I could see if somebody had been misidentified because I knew them all so well. And sort of the same thing with this book. I began to know the places and the people and their marriages and their relationships and their troubles. And I found the moguls of LA and the mobsters of Las Vegas very interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that comes across on the pages of this novel and the, the, these periods and these two cities become like characters in, in the novel. And it, it was funny because I was, I was thinking it's a very, very different book, a very, very different period, different story. But as I was reading your book, it made me think of Janet Fitch's White Oleander. And then I flipped the book closed and saw she had blurbed the book. So I thought that was that was uh, quite, quite funny. Um, but t- let me let me ask you, what other books have you loved where place and a period becomes like a character in the novel? I think I might always be drawn to those kind of books. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what I'm reading right now, which is sort of silly, but I um, have been reading Prairie Fires, the biography that just won the Pulitzer about Laura Ingalls Wilder. Fascinated by that book. And now I've gone back and I'm reading all of Ingalls Wilder's work from, oh, you know, Little House of the Big Woods, Little House yeah. on the Prairie. And that is a landscape and a period that is the character that is the antagonist uh, for the journey of these sort of duped pioneers who thought they were going to homestead on fertile land, which was all a lie created by the railroads who wanted to sell this land along their track and have towns built and warehouses. And they could never make a go of it because there was never enough rainfall. They destroyed the ecosystem and they starved and millions of them who had gone out there had to move away. Their lives were broken. That is fascinating to me. That's a real character in a novel. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, I've been giving this some thought in anticipation of having the opportunity to speak with you and thinking about other books that I've read recently where place and a city becomes a character. And I thought of, Oh, you pretty things by Shauna Mayen, uh, who was on my podcast last year. And again, very different period. Uh, but she does just an exceptional job of nailing 
modern LA life and celebrity lifestyle. So I don't know if you've read that book, but Sean is a, a wonderful human being, a great literary citizen. And I, I really think you'd enjoy that book if you haven't read it already. Absolutely. Yeah. You'll, you'll recognize many streets, many restaurants, many, uh, many pieces of, of uh, the quirks of LA life. Uh, so I highly rec recommend that. I know you'd appreciate it. Um, let me ask you uh, uh, about a primary theme in this novel, uh, a theme that you you touched on in, in your brief reading of, from the opening chapter, which is the American dream and the, the blessings and curse of, of being a dreamer. And uh, let me let me read for you a few lines that jumped out at me just in the, the very initial chapters of the book. Of course, in chapter one that you just read from, something that jumped out at me was, that was the prize, the unformed future. And then a little bit later, uh, you're talking about all the better to share his vision of a prosperous future. You talk about the new mirage. Uh, uh, we talk about Esme's mother dying to be noticed. And there's talk about the big wide future for those dreamers. And then at the end of chapter four, and, and this is this of course is Esme narrating, saying, I used to love to listen while my parents talked like that, back and forth, their dreams, great puffs of smoke that made a lullaby for me soon 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 and that's it's so beautiful but i i wanted to ask you to talk to me a little bit about esme's parents as dreamers and i want to know your personal opinion if you will of those dreamer types generally and now i'm guessing that that's going to be uh pretty heavily informed by your mother's experience and what you know about your grandparents. Well, I, I really love dreamers. I think dreamers are the engines of the world. I love their ambition and I love their resilience and I love that they're filled with hope. And, and I really think that the dream for each person is sort of the same dream. It's to build some kind of empire for yourself, which is your place of power and fulfillment, but I think for each person, the dimensions and characteristics of that empire will be different. But what I don't like is when dreamers forsake everybody else in pursuit of that dream, uh -huh. which is what happened to my mother in her parents' pursuit of that dream. And I have a photograph of my grandfather above my writing desk walking with my mother's looks like he's about nine or nine or so years old two of them walking in downtown LA and my grandfather you know can't be that old but he already looks older than he is with hair receding and his face very much blind and troubled and you can see that the dream is not happening for him already at this point the way he wanted it to. And in fact, though, I do not know what happened to them at all after my uncle left them because he was our only narrator. 
I do know that they ended up in uh, those medical nursing homes. Mm-hmm. And so clearly, if you're ending up in a medical nursing home, you were not able to build a lasting empire. Um, and there seems to me something, I don't know, um, doesn't make me feel good to say, but there's a justice in that, that they stomped all over and ruined their children's lives in the pursuit of an empire that included somehow just the two of them. It couldn't mm-hmm. expand it enough to include the children as well. So I I guess I love dreamers, but I don't like the selfishness that can sometimes right. accompany a dreamer. Right, right. I couldn't agree with you more. And Adrian, talking to you, I, next time I'm up in Los Angeles, uh, we're going to have to get together and have uh, more than one glasses of wine because uh, very different circumstances. But uh, your your personal family story is uh, really resonant with my the story of my grandmother and her abandonment of my mother and uh, and the and the scars that 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 left and she was kind of a of a she was one of those dreamer types and Mm. always in pursuit of bettering herself and uh in whatever way she could she was a woman with a second grade education she was very beautiful and uh but she would run off and just abandon my mother she would go to and you're probably familiar with these in the 1930s the depression era dance marathon where um, people would uh, just stay up dancing for, you couldn't, you had to eat on stage, you couldn't sleep. And, and whoever was still standing after 30 days, 60 days, whatever days, won. And people would go to these things because it was free food. And there were agents and whatnot who showed up in the audience. But, you know, at, at what cost? you know, her, her, her pursuit of those things. So anyway, I'm digressing. Fascinating. <laughs> yeah. So, so you and I, we're going to, we're going to get a bottle of wine and we're going to, we're going to uh, spend an afternoon. <laughs> yes. That's, that's, because that's the big. story, it doesn't only affect our mothers. It affects us as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. we are shaped by the way our mothers were shaped and the yep. way our grandmothers shaped those women. Yep. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, now, back to the, this dreamer and the, the theme of the American dream. What do you think the American dream means today? Uh, and do you think it's changed since the 1939, 1945 periods uh, where your novel is set? Or do you think it's the same? I think for most people, it is the same. Everyone still wants uh, financial security, a safe place to live and raise their children. And I think for most middle-class people, that is the American dream. I think for some other people, um, the American dream has become something incredibly greedy and gobbling in which they want to own all the money of the world, all the treasure of the world and, and not be regulated in any way whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So 
I think there were always those people as well. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it, it's it's interesting. Uh, you talk about uh, the dream of security, and what's what's always a fascinating conversation with with anyone is to play the the game, if you will, for lack of a better word, of having them rank for you what's most important to them and. For some people, it's security, and for other people, their number one value is adventure, and for some people, it's fame, and for some people don't want fame, but they want fortune, and it's it's just always a fascinating conversation to, to have. Well, I think for my characters, clearly the father wanted adventure and fortune, the mother wanted fame, uh-huh. and Esme wants security. Uh-huh. She goes about arranging for herself uh, through the only means possible for a young woman at that time, through the men in her life who will groom her or mentor her or indulge her or allow her to gain some power, bank some money. And for Esme, I think being um, the showgirl and and then the burlesque artist was not about the, the narcissism of the beauty of the self, but here's how I can make money and this man's going to give me a cut of the tables and a salary and allow me to do this because he's indulging me for however long he chooses to indulge me. I need to make hay. And I kind of admire her uh, for her scramble. Uh But at the end of the novel, I think she's finally gaining a, a moral compass, which is a hard thing to hold in your hand when you've been around, you know, liars and cheats and, you know, gamblers and mobsters and uh, movie people who promise but never deliver. Everyone's a liar and a cheat in her world. And finally, at the end, I was debating, what do I have her do? drive back down into that dirty, radiant light of Las Vegas and just do the best she can there, having acknowledged the dark side? Or do I have her leave and, and, and drive away? And, and it was a struggle for me to decide what would this young girl do? Right, right. Uh, and yeah, and I think that's why there's so much, I think that in my experience of reading this novel, that what worked, what made it work was the incessant conflict between these, these three family members and who are, who are in each other's lives and those values, security, adventure, fame, fortune, conflicting and, uh, so I think that for me, uh, I think that really encapsulates what what made the story uh, so so moving and uh, kind of unputdownable. But uh, we're we're running out of time. So as we start to wrap up, I want to ask you a craft question, and that is that you move back and forth in time and in place throughout this novel and 
you do it seamlessly without missing a beat. I didn't get snagged up once. And I wanted to ask you, what is the trick to moving back and forth in time in fiction without losing your reader? I think each writer does it differently. For me, I simply use the chapter breaks. Mm-hmm. And what I try to do was sort of pick up uh, with something the reader would remember from the last time we were in 1939 okay. or the last time we were there in the late 40s, becoming the early 50s. My 1939 section is just a summer. My Las Vegas section, which in 45, stretches over five or six years. That one was a little harder because I had to reorient the reader to place or character because Vegas was changing. In 1939, nothing was changing. It was the family together, you know, in, in, in L.A. In Vegas, a whole city was being built around them. All the hotels were going up. Although the landscape around them was changing, my characters provided the continuity because we were still with Esme and her father and then with Nate Stein, who was becoming more and more important as the narrative continued. Yeah, definitely the, a go-to trick, I believe, in to, to anchor readers regarding time and location uh, changes is effectively like what you do. You say, so I'm looking at chapter 12 and it's headed Los Angeles, 1939. So we instantly know where we've gone. But but it is interesting that you said that you picked up, uh, picked up some threads of where you had left off at that time and place uh, so that the reader is is immediately reoriented and I thought that was really really effective so before we sign off I just I wanted to ask you uh my new favorite question and as you can imagine uh, virtually everyone who listens to this podcast is a writer um and so they can they can relate to this issue but what are you doing to promote this book well I think I think it's always just a combination of things. The, the first thing I did is I've, I've written articles and essays about my mother and about Las Vegas and about the book and I published them in places like BookPage and Crime Reads and, uh, and on LitHub. And then I also sent out books um, on what we call a big mouth list. Um, writers that you know or that you like or who've ever reviewed you. So I sent out, say, 50-some books to people like that. Um, Going to book festivals, writing on Goodreads. Uh, You can connect with a lot of readers on Goodreads. We ran an ad on Goodreads. Uh, Doing interviews uh, for Publishers Weekly, an interview for Kirk that really reaches a lot of the librarians who then go around and promote uh, books that they like. Uh, There's sort of no one method, and it it depends on your editor and your publicist at your house. Everybody has sort of a a different kind of track. It just depends on the book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that a terrible answer? (laughs) (laughs) No. 
I, I know there's no, I mean, there's no way to answer that question. That's why I like asking it so much because again, everyone who's listening, one, they're learning uh, from everyone's very different answer to that question. And they're empathizing because there's, you know, the, the short answer, the summary is like everything humanly possible. And, uh, you know, within the within the means of the resources available. But and on that note, before we sign off, uh, I it sounds like people can buy the magnificent Esme Wells anywhere right amazon uh your local independent bookstore that's right yeah okay all right well again this has been adrian sharp author of the novel the magnificent esme wells adrian i really appreciate you joining me and uh and i mean it i'm gonna i'm gonna track you down and uh, we're gonna spend a couple of hours together in in la and talking about our our mothers and grandmothers <laughs> yes, Karen, you can be my new best friend. Okay, good. Okay. Thanks, Adrian. <laughs> okay. All right. Bye -bye. Thank you so much. <laughs>